I tell anybody that that's what I'm going to speak about, then for some reason they just laugh at me. Um, so I don't know whether that's more about me or the subject. But I do think that it's important that we talk about fasting this morning. Uh, as Pete said uh, when he mentioned the day of prayer and fasting that we have on Wednesday, Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, said, when you fast, not if you fast. It's one of the three things that he set as kind of minimum assumptions that he'd make about all Christians. However, it's been estimated that more than 95% of Christians don't fast. So are you part of that 95%? I think it's important we talk about it this morning. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in London a bit ago, and he said, the fact is, is it not? that this whole subject of fasting seems to have dropped right out of our lives and right out of our whole Christian thinking. So I think that's true for me. I mean, I don't even know when the last sermon I heard on fasting was. It was quite a while ago. So I think it's important that we kind of come back and revisit it this morning. Bill Bright was the founder of an organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. And he said, fasting is the most powerful spiritual discipline of all the Christian disciplines. So... Imagine what our lives would be like if we did it a bit more. Um, But I don't think it's just important generally for Christians. I think it's important for Redeemer. Uh, We had a day of prayer and fasting back in October. And I remember a word being brought from God, and I can't remember who brought it, so sorry if it's you. But um, there was a word kind of spoken over us as a church, saying we'd be a church characterized by discipline, and specifically mentioned was fasting. So I wonder, do we need to kind of step up to what God has spoken over us? But more than that, and even more specifically, we were a community group a week or two ago, and Sandra is in my community group, and she said, shared something that God said to her, and I just asked her if she'd come and share that with us this morning. Hi, everyone. Um, it was about two weeks ago, like Sam said, and we were just all praying, and um, we were praying because Pete, as he said this morning, we're praying for um, 100 people to come next week for um, the launch. And as we were praying, I kind of just really felt God just say really that the key to have that like amazing breakthrough, that bumper crop, so to speak, would be, you know, in prayer and fasting uh, because essentially it amplifies our prayer. So as we pray, it's like, oh God, you know, do this, do this, do this. But when we mix fasting with it it's like booming you know in heaven and it's like the whole throne room is like whoa this thing is important so as as we uh, meet together hopefully next Wednesday and we sacrifice (laughs) our flesh you know I'm just (laughs) pressing in the spirit um I believe that God was just really saying that and when we were praying about it that that's how we'll get that breakthrough so we all need to come in agreements together on Wednesday Thanks very much. Just tied to that, uh, right leading up to Jesus' launch of his public ministry, he spent 40 days in prayer and fasting. So if he needed it, we need to do it. (laughs) Um, So kind of bearing that in mind, um, I'm going to read from Isaiah 58. Um, Don't worry if you don't have a Bible or if you have a Bible and don't want to follow it because it's a bit of of a, a unique passage that we'll be reading so I'm just warning you, God gets a little bit sarcastic in it, which doesn't happen often. But, yeah, we've got to kind of go with what he tells us, don't we? So Isaiah 58. This is God speaking to Isaiah the prophet, a message for him to share with the people of Israel, God's people. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, 
to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Oh, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of God shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. So it's quite a straightforward passage really it's simply God saying this is a bad fast and this is a good fast which is quite good because actually when you read the Bible there's very little it actually says about what we should do when we fast there are lots of examples of it but it just sort of happens there's just a description how somebody fasted and there are times that Daniel is often quoted as the guy who fasted some food but not all of it so he fasted meats and sweets so it's called the Daniel fast. And one time he fasted wine. Oh, no. oh, dear. And then there are other examples where people fasted food, but they continued to drink. Um, and there are other fasts where people fasted both food and drink. Moses actually fasted food and drink for 40 days. So I think there was some supernatural help on that one. And there's lots of kind of teaching outside the Bible which teaches us how to fast. And people have encouraged people to uh, fast, but you can eat rice and only eat rice. Apparently that's an ancient form of kind of accepted way of fasting. Another one that's quite popular is fasting, but you can continue to drink fruit juice. Um, There's actually a Hindu at work who was fasting this week on Thursday, and she seemed to be eating everything. (laughs) And she had nuts and seeds and fruit and yogurt. I mean, it seemed like anything could go in, but she gave me her toffee sauce, so that was okay. Um, but there's also kind of fasting which doesn't include food. So people now talk about you can fast television or you could fast Facebook. That's quite trendy now, isn't it? And when I kind of heard that, I thought, well, that's not in the Bible. But no, there are fasts which are not of food in the Bible. There's an Israelite feast called the Feast of Booths. I know it's called a feast. It's a bit of an odd way for a fast, isn't it? But once a year for one whole week, they would fast shelter. So they would give up their homes and they would make little booths for themselves, little tents, and they'd live in the tents for a week to remember the fact that they were in the wilderness for 40 years. So you can fast shelter. And I'm not sure whether I should say this, but in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul is writing to married couples and actually suggests it might be a good idea for you to fast sex every so often and commit the time to prayer instead. I don't know how much you'd end up praying there. Anyway, uh, but then come back after a time. So... Now, it seems like the, the fasts that are in the Bible, however, are far more kind of serious. 
Like you don't give up chocolate or Facebook or TV. Like there's no suggestion that you should give up luxury goods. But according to this passage that we've just read, it doesn't seem to really matter what it is that you give up. Because if you look at the description of the bad fast, the one that the Israelites are doing, it actually seems pretty good. So for a start, it uses this word fast. Now in the ancient Hebrew, which was originally written, it's the word tsum, which literally means to kind of shut your mouth. It's a picture of a lock over your mouth so that no food or drink will enter. So they're fasting both food and drink. So they're pretty serious about it. And then it says they seek me daily. They ask of me righteous judgment. So they're obviously spending the time in prayer. It says they delight to know my ways. So they're spending time studying the Bible. They're bowing down like a reed. And so they're kind of bowing down in reverence and honor before God. They're spreading sackcloth and ashes. So they're humbling themselves. I mean, what more do they need to do? But God says that while they're fasting, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and fight. It's obvious that despite the fact they're doing all this stuff, they're ticking the right boxes, they're actually, their heart's in the wrong place. They're not living a life which suggests that their fast is a serious one, that they are humbling themselves before God. So it's about the heart, not the stomach. Adam Clark uh, was a Bible commentator writing in 1823, and he said, How can any nation pretend to fast or worship God at all? or dare to profess that they believe in the existence of such a being while they carry on the slave trade and traffic in the souls, blood, and bodies of men. Adam Clark kind of got it spot on. He says, like, you're fasting, you're ticking the box, going to church every week, and then the rest of the time, then you're selling people for profit. Your lives are a life of hypocrisy, really. I wonder if I could kind of throw a challenge out there this early on in my talk before I get kicked out and say, oh, when you fast on Wednesday, are you going to be fasting like a hypocrite or are you going to be you know, performing an authentic fast where actually our lives are focused on God for that day? And looking at Jesus teaching in Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18, then it actually follows a very similar pattern to this one. He says, don't fast like a hypocrite, fast in the way that I'm setting out for you. Um, And the way that he starts is very interesting. He says, uh, when you fast, uh, do not look gloomy as the hypocrites do. So it's a bit weird, isn't it? Like, don't be sad, be happy when you fast. And I think that that's the key to this entire bit of teaching that Jesus is giving. Matthew 6 is right in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It starts at the beginning of Matthew 5. And in there, he starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that word blessed basically means be happy. So happy are the people who are poor in spirit. And he, he does this kind of weird thing where he picks people who you'd particularly think are not going to be happy, but says, no, you are happy because you know, you're living for the glory of God. And then eventually he comes on to this teaching and says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, be happy. Which I think is quite interesting. So what we're going to look at as the kind of main course of this morning, um, is how we can really get satisfaction uh, when we fast. We're going to look at kind of three different areas, except it's almost like Jesus is saying, if you fast and you fast well, fast right, there's actually going to be a deeper level of satisfaction that you get out of fasting. You don't need to look gloomy. But if you're anything like me, it is very easy to look gloomy. When it gets to about 11 o'clock in the morning, I tend to start getting hungry anyway. Um, 
I'm definitely at work. Prashant is here from my work, and he knows that I start going, are we going to have lunch soon? Because I could really do the sandwich. If I could do the sandwich about now. Anyone do the sandwich? Um, but when you're fasting, you get hungry about the same time, but you can't just say to yourself, oh, we'll have lunch in about an hour, so I'll kind of park that and come back to it. You have to face it head on, don't you? And it's a bit frustrating. I think that there is a level of satisfaction that we can attain through fasting in purity. So the first is satisfaction in purity. Um, when I get hungry, the kind of hungrier I get, the more angry I get, and I get kind of irritable and get short with people. I find it harder to resist temptation. I definitely kind of think about myself more. My hunger starts to kind of take over me from inside. And if I'm fasting, I can't simply say, oh, well, I'm angry because I'm hungry, and so I'm going to eat, and then I won't be angry anymore. I don't know if you kind of spot what happens there, but then I say, well, I'm tempted to sin, and the thing that's going to stop me sinning is eating. Like food has become my idol, my kind of functional savior. If, if anything's going to stop me sinning, having a sandwich or you know, having something nice to eat, that'll settle me down. Actually, no. We've identified an idol, which is a good thing for us to do. It means that we can repent of it. It's an opportunity to turn back to Jesus. But also, um, it means that we can spot the things, the sins which are sitting below our conscious level. Because if when I'm hungry, I get angry, what it means is really I'm angry. And it's just my hunger has kind of shown me that. Or if I get tempted by something, I can't just say, oh, well, I'm hungry, and that's why. No, that's a sin which is sitting there, and you've got an opportunity to repent of it that we wouldn't have otherwise. Richard Foster wrote a great book called The Celebration of Discipline. And he said, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what is inside of us with food and other things. So fasting can help us to kind of identify that. It opens the door to repentance and it deals a blow to Satan because Satan will then kind of pop up and say, oh, you, you know, you'd be better. If you just had something to eat, you'd be fine. And we can say to him, no, you're trying to distract me by God's gifts to distract me from the giver. And so I'm not going to eat. That's a, it's kind of, it deals direct blow to Satan. He says, all you want to do is eat. No, I'm not going to. I win this battle for the glory of Jesus. Jesus actually did this. When he fasted for 40 days, right before the public launch of his ministry, Satan came directly to him and tempted him and said, uh, you know, make this, turn this stone into bread and why don't you have something to eat because you're hungry? And Jesus said to him, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, I kind of went and looked that up. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 8. Fair enough. But if we just quickly go there, then you'll see why this is special for Jesus fast in the wilderness. If we look at verse 2 of Deuteronomy 8, he says, uh, this is Moses kind of speaking to the people of Israel. He says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus was led by the Spirit for 40 days into the wilderness to fast. Interesting. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna 
which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the bread that they're talking about in that verse is manna, the supernatural gift from God. It's not talking about just random bread that manna's made. This is talking very specifically about a special gift that God gives that we couldn't do it without him. So when it comes to kind of dealing with Satan in our uh, temptation when we're fasting, then when we say, oh, I'm going to fast, it's very specifically saying, no, God is giving me those gifts, and I'm not looking at them because God is better. So there's a deeper level of satisfaction we can get from God rather than getting distracted by his gifts. And it also helps us to deal with purity because it gives us an experience. Somebody once said that the distance between the head and the heart is the greatest distance in the world or something. It's very easy to know something and not really know it. So a bit ago, I had an experience which kind of is my go-to experience whenever I have doubts about my faith. I can look at the evidence for Jesus' resurrection and all of the historical stuff around it and go, I am intellectually convinced Jesus Christ was a real man who really died and came back to life. There's no other logical explanation for it. Anyone who accepts another one is a fool. But I still doubt it. But then I was uh, at church meeting a little bit ago, I mean, a few years ago now, and I felt that God had said to me, there's somebody here with a problem in their left ovary, and you should say it. And there were like 20 people in this group, so like half of them, they haven't even got ovaries, so I mean, that was half of them out. I thought it was quite a specific one, I mean, what was the problem with the right ovary? But I thought, well, you know, if I don't say it, I'm going to regret it. And I said it, and there was somebody there with a problem with their left ovary, and she couldn't have kids. And she had a checkup that week to uh, perform a what you, surgery on it or something. Oh, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> um, but, and so we prayed for her, and she went for this checkup, and it actually turned out she'd been healed. She got better. And now she's got a kid. So it's like, when I think, I oh, know, maybe you know, I've got a doubt, I just go, no, I didn't come up with that on my own. God spoke to me, and it's an experience that I've had. Now, it's very easy for me to say it, and you to go, oh, can that be my experience? But you didn't live it, so... It, when we fast, then we experience a time when we have demonstrated self-control. And so if we, let's say we fast for this week, and then temptation comes along in six months' time and says, oh, you know, you should just give in. Why don't you, you know, just visit that website? It'll be nice. You can go, no, I do have self-control. I've demonstrated it. I've experienced it for myself. So fasting kind of helps us while we're fasting, but also in the future it's something that we can hang our hat on and go, no, the fruit of the Spirit are growing in me. So, fasting can give us satisfaction in purity. But it also gives us satisfaction in the effects. And there are direct effects of fasting, and there are kind of indirect effects of fasting. Now, some of the indirect effects are in this passage that we looked at, Isaiah 58. The good fast that uh, God is teaching to the people of God, is not this the fast I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness and do the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke, to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the hopeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. It's all about helping other people, isn't it? It seems like God's saying the authentic fast is the one where actually we've humbled ourselves to the point that we go, I'm going to help somebody else who's less well off than me. And really, that's at the core of fasting, isn't it? I make myself hungry, and I imagine what it's like for people who are hungry a lot more than I am. 
So when I'm fasting, if I go past a homeless person who's saying, you know, can you buy me a sandwich, I don't need to think, oh, I wonder what it's like, because I can feel the hunger. Probably not even as bad as they can. And it's going to change me to want to serve people more. Fasting that isn't accompanied by social action isn't really fasting. I mean, it's more of an indirect effect of it, really, but God put it here in the Bible not to tell us off, but to give us a good example of this is what fasting really looks like. It's to get alongside those who are homeless, who are poor, who are oppressed. It's passages like this and fasting which really kind of beat the slave trade, isn't it? Maybe it still needs beating. But there are direct effects as well. Acts chapter 13 and verse 3 is um, one very good example of people hearing clearly from God. They're fasting and they hear God say, pick out Saul and Barnabas and send them instead. That's, you know, the Holy Spirit speaks to us clearly when we fast. So I think on Wednesday evening when we gather together, we should come expecting to hear clearly from God because we've been fasting and that's what he does. Fasting gives us protection. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the people of Israel are trapped inside a city and there are two armies on either side wanting to attack them. But they fast and God, in the middle of the night, confuses them and they end up killing each other and the armies kind of run away in terror that the Israelites are so strong. And then they go out and it takes them three whole days just to gather the, um, the spoil of the battle they didn't even fight. Fasting is very powerful. Fasting results in miracles. In Daniel chapter 6 and verse 18, we've got a record of um, a king who is not actually uh, one of the Jews. He's a Gentile. He's not one of the people of God. But he fasts to the Israelite God. And as a direct result of that, Daniel isn't eaten by lions. So there's kind of quite unique, special miracles. So Maybe there's a miracle in your life that fasting would help you to deal with or even supernaturally deal with. And then in the year 1756, there are quite a lot of examples of this, actually. Uh, the French were amassing an army ready to attack England. And so the King of England declared a national day of prayer and fasting. John Wesley, about that day, wrote, The fast day was a glorious day, such as London has scarce seen since the Restoration. Surely God heareth prayer, and there will yet be a lengthening of our tranquility and war with France was averted. I don't think that was down to good politics, whatever they were ready to attack. I think that God intervened because people turned to him. Now, I do think it's important here to point out that these miracles, it's not a kind of just go and cash in your fast. Fasting isn't just for prayer. So in the Bible, probably more often than it's for prayer, it's actually for mourning. So when somebody dies, then they fast because they're upset, somebody else is upset, and they want to come alongside them in a practical way. So it's not, not primarily for prayer. Now, I think it is for prayer, but I don't think we should get distracted by thinking, oh, well, fasting is going to make my prayer answered. In fact, there are examples in the Bible of where people fast and they don't get it answered. David's son was dying, David fasted for him, and he still died. And then he went back eating afterwards, and people said, why are, you fast? why are you not fasting now? Because you should be fasting in mourning for your son's death. And he said, I tried fasting, and God still let him die, so it's the will of God. I'll go back to eating. So I don't think that we should kind of think, 
I've been praying for something, I fasted, I didn't get it, and therefore fasting doesn't work. I think that God works in ways that we might not understand at first. But I think that that can give us a, a deeper level of satisfaction in the effects of And also, probably the best of all, fasting brings us satisfaction in eternity. So Matthew chapter 6, uh, we've got that little bit of teaching on fasting, 16 through 18. Um, We've got, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So it's pretty clear, fast and you will get rewarded. But the hypocrite's reward is now. So if I fast in a way that you know, gets me lots of praise, then they're going to receive that reward. But if I fast authentically, then my reward is just going to come later. And this is very clear if you look at it within the context of what Jesus is saying. He starts Matthew chapter 6 uh, by saying, Beware of practicing righteous acts before others, for then you'll have no reward in heaven. Okay, so it assumes that we, our reward will be kind of getting stored up in heaven to be revealed to us if we don't practice those righteous acts in public. And then immediately after um, this bit on fasting, in verse 19, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So Jesus says, if you're a hypocrite and you fast, then you'll get your reward now, and guess what? It's just going to go. In a year's time, those people might have forgotten that you were so holy, any kind of respect that you get from them is just, you know, it's just going to come and go. But the reward you put for yourself in heaven is going to be there forever. It's imperishable. And then he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's like if we fast in an authentic way, what it means is that our eyes are on eternity and not on now. But if I then end up fasting because my eyes are on eternity and I put treasure there, where your treasure is, then your heart will be also. So it's kind of an upward spiral. The more that we focus on eternity, the more we'll want to store up treasure there, and therefore the more that we'll be excited about it. I mean, I don't know anything about you. That's definitely the way that I experience God. The more that I get off him, the more that I want to kind of step deeper into him. If I'm reading my Bible lots, then it excites me. I want to read it more. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, Sam, you're talking a lot about fasting. It's really hard, isn't it? I'd say the reason it's hard is because you haven't fasted. If you fast, it will deepen your uh, desire to fast. So if, you, if at the moment you don't fast at all, try fasting once a month. And after you've done that for a bit, then you know, maybe do it once a week and then do it twice a week. Just kind of build it up from something small and your desire to fast and your ability to fast will increase. The choice to fast is to choose to give up what we want now so we can get what we want most. So if you kind of put it on a little cost-benefit analysis and you said, you know, I've got lunch or I've got an eternal reward with Jesus, which one would I rather have? I want this one most, but I want this one now. And that's that's always the challenge, isn't it? We can choose to give this up, and we will get that. C.S. Lewis, I'm sure that many of us have heard this before. 
If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Let's not get distracted by something that just says, you know, if I had something to eat, it would just make me happy. No, it wouldn't. It would because we're ignorant. Every meal that we miss now increases our satisfaction forever. You know, it's it's the offer of, do you want to have a value sandwich now or do you want to come in and have a three-course meal in a five-star restaurant? I'm hungry now. I'll take the sandwich. No, you idiot. You won't. You'll take the nice meal. This is great news. That's why they call it the good news. Now, after having kind of looked at all these different ways that fasting satisfies us, it would be tempting to get distracted by fasting and its results and think, well, fasting is this kind of hammer that I break the piggy bank of God's, I don't know, riches that he kind of pours out to us, but I need to fast and need to do it. And that's the exact thing that the people in Isaiah 58 had fallen into, just kind of doing it and then turn to God and say, well, I'm fasting, why aren't you rewarding me? But fasting has a deeper message. Jesus said that the whole of the Bible points to him. And fasting is no exception. Fasting, I think, is probably the best practical demonstration of what Jesus has done for us that I can think of. I can't think of anything else. It shows us grace upon grace. See, when we fast, it shows us how good God is to us because we fast and we get hungry. We know that there is something out there that can satisfy us, but we're kind of cultivating that practical hunger. And then we experience God gives grace to us by giving us food. Whatever we eat, whether it's kind of vegetable or fruit or rice or meat or fish or whatever it is, all of it comes because God has given it to the earth. It's all part of God's creation. If God doesn't make the, uh, you know, the crop grow, we don't eat. You know, if God puts a disease or allows a disease in a, you know, a flock of cows, herd of cows, um, we don't get any beef. Like it, it goes away. So we have to rely on God's grace for us even to eat. Yet God shows us grace upon grace. He doesn't simply give us food. He could just put manna out and we could have you know, the same kind of bread every day but he blesses us with such a wide variety of flavors and textures, and there's meat and fish and fruit and veg, and then even within that, you know, in meat you've got pork and beef, and then in pork you've got bacon and pork chops. I'm really hungry, actually. I really like watching MasterChef, and it's good when you even see the professionals on MasterChef, almost every series, then they eat some dish and go, man, I've never tasted something like that before. I think you're a professional chef and you still haven't tasted something. Like the, the variety that God has given us in food is just extraordinary, isn't it? And that teaches us in a very practical way that we can experience that God gives grace upon grace. But that reminds us not of how good food is, but of how good Jesus is. 
The physical hunger that we have is only a tiny glimpse of the deep spiritual hunger that we have in knowledge that this natural world is not all there is. There is a supernatural world here which we simply know. know, There must be more to life than this, isn't it? That's what we say. We have a hunger for something. We hunger for righteousness and justice and forgiveness and mercy. We, We hunger for all these things. It's ironic that Adam and Eve in the garden put us into an involuntary fast by eating of the fruit. And we've kind of been left with this hunger. But Jesus meets our needs. In grace, he came and lived the perfect life for us. He died on the cross in our place. Is our substitute. When he died, our death died with him. And when he came to new life, we are united with him in his resurrection. And we now know that we will live for eternity. But it's not simply that. God blesses us with so much more. He sends his spirit upon us as a gift. He gives us community, blesses us with so many wonderful gifts. And then he promises that we will be like him for eternity. When we fast, the most important thing should be that we are reminded of God's grace upon grace. And we're not distracted by the effects, even though they might be absolutely great. We should never think, ah, I fasted, I did it, I'll fast again. We should think, I fasted, I did it, God is great. That's pretty much all that I had kind of prepared for this morning. I think in conclusion, I'll say, you know, what's the challenge that we've set this morning? I think that all of us, and I consider myself part of this, the reason why people laughed when I said that I'm teaching about fasting is because I really like food. (laughs) And so I think, you know, it's a hard thing for all of us. But let's fast, fast more, fast more regularly. And let's fast more biblically. Um, I think the band are going to come back up and kind of lead us and some songs, but maybe if, as we move into singing, if we could just have some nice calm chords going around, and maybe if we kind of just sit for just a couple of minutes and just consider the unblushing rewards that Jesus has promised to us through fasting, consider his grace upon grace, and then we can respond by singing songs to him.